0: Good morning, everybody, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike, the sound guy, broadcasting from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. We also have Samson in studio with us this week. Y'all might remember last week I mentioned he had to have an unexpected surgery. He's got a couple more days with his stitches. Sunday was day 10 uh, since the surgery, so when it gets day 14, they'll be taken out. But until then, I've got to keep an eye on him even when I'm recording the podcast. Folks, got a lot to talk about this week. You might notice when you downloaded this episode that it's more than twice our typical length. Uh, that is because we are doing our first ever interview of a guest. Uh, I'd mentioned before that when I started this podcast, there were two things that really prompted me to do it. Uh, one was an interview with Anna Marie Cox on "With Friends Like These," where several folks were like, "Hey, you should start a podcast." And the other piece was a friend of mine from undergrad who started a podcast about six months ago, and I realized if a guy with a political science degree can do it, I should be able to do it with my computer science degree, right? So we will be talking with Harold Respass of the Respass Report podcast in the middle segment of uh, of our thing today. So we'll go over the political news, we'll talk about some criminal justice news, we'll then have the interview with Harold, and in the back third of the pod, we will talk about Standing which is the requirements that have to be met in order for you to actually file a lawsuit against somebody in federal court. So before we get into that, a couple podcast announcements. Um, we have a survey of sorts that my media hosting provider, Blueberry, does for listeners, for all podcasts. Uh, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. But when you can, I'd like you to fill it out just so I can have some guidance on who is listening to me. Uh, it's all anonymous. So you don't have to enter in any information. I don't see individual survey responses. I just get the aggregate stuff., uh, it's something they use for all of their hosted media. But if you could fill that out, that would be great. Uh, I also want your feedback on something. So the uh, the surgery for Samson was ruinously expensive. It came out to just under six thousand dollars. Um, I had to clean out my bank account, my law firm's bank account, max out a credit card, and still had to borrow money from my girlfriend. Uh, So we're thinking about setting up a Patreon account, um, which is a thing for creative professionals where folks can kind of chip in to support podcasts and music creation and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, I'm thinking about setting up one of those just so that the expenses that we incur with Blueberry and kind of creating this podcast uh, can help defray some of that because This week's podcast might be a little bit late because I've actually got to go count some quarters and make a deposit to make sure that our monthly hosting bill can be paid. So give me some thoughts on that. You know, if it's something you might be willing to support, give me an idea of what kind of perks you'd like to see. Um, We haven't decided to officially do it yet, but I'm trying to make sure that I limit the amount that we go into the hole creating the podcast because until... uh, I can bring in some more clients for the law firm. It's going to be touch and go a bit financially for uh, us here. So I would appreciate your feedback on both the survey and the Patreon creation. Just let me know. We also got an unexpected shout out in the Independent Weekly, which is a uh, weekly magazine here in Durham. You might recall, those of you that have been listening since the beginning and follow me on Twitter, uh, they endorsed me back during the campaign last year. I was the only Republican they endorsed for the state legislature. So they have this annual issue called the Best of the Triangle, where they Take people's votes on every conceivable category of goods and services you could possibly buy and compile it all together. And in the best attorney category, I was neither nominated nor listed, but they did give the podcast a shout out. So that was awesome. I'm going to link the article in the uh, in the show notes. Check it out. I was actually uh, yeah, I was pleased. Totally unexpected. Appreciate the folks at the Indy. Read it when you get a chance. Also, happy belated Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Yesterday was Father's Day, and today is both Juneteenth, so if anyone happens to celebrate that, that was Emancipation Day in Texas back during the Civil War, but now is something celebrated across a lot of states in the Southeast. Uh, We've been celebrating here in North Carolina for longer than I can remember. I mean, it's been at least 12, 13 years. We actually had a concert out front of my office, like directly outside of my office window uh, on Saturday. So as I'm in the office getting work done, I was able to have a live concert experience. It was pretty nice. Um, Also, this is the, I think, 45th, 49th. Don't quote me on the actual... Uh, year, But this is the anniversary of the first ever report about Watergate, which you'll recall it took about two years after that first news story of arrests came out before Nixon resigned in disgrace. Take that for what you will, not implying anything is going to particularly happen with the Kumquat comrade currently occupying the Oval Office. But I just thought that was a nice anniversary. Speaking of Mango Mussolini, let's talk politics. Well, actually, pause. Let's talk foreign affairs first, all right? So the United States Navy has released a list of soldiers who died when uh, the USS Fitzgerald was hit by a Philippine cargo ship. Uh, our prayers go out to the families of those who are lost. Um, the, the interesting thing about this is that this is the worst peacetime disaster with a ship since I think 2001. I mean, I think that was the year where one of our submarines surfaced underneath a Japanese research vessel and several high school students and their teacher died in that incident. Um, We haven't really had ship collisions, uh, accidental ones anyway, for a while because now we've got GPS and better technology and it's just, you've seen things that used to be, you know, not terribly frequent now almost never happen. So, we don't fully know what has taken place yet with this particular situation. It's still being investigated. But it also ties in with international affairs because the USS Fitzgerald almost sank. And part of the reason why it did not is that the crew was able to get them to port in Japan, where the ship is currently, until it can be repaired. And also, several of the crew members were airlifted by helicopter to a military hospital in Japan. And it's interesting because the Apricot Authoritarian was just talking not too long ago about how useless our alliance with the Japanese was. I mean, he wanted to end it, was whining about how much money we pay, and this particular scenario highlights the importance of those alliances. It's something where, God forbid, if we ever have to attack somebody, having allies provides force projection because we have our military in these other spots around the globe, but just as importantly, if something goes wrong, whether it's military or not, if it's just an accident like what happened this past week, Having those allies enables us to save American lives, and that enables us to preserve American assets. I mean, it's not cheap building a destroyer, you know what I mean? So the idea that the alliance with the Japanese is useless has been kind of, you know, that's not accurate. And this week has really highlighted that. Also in foreign affairs, there's yet another terrorist attack in London just this in the past 24 hours. Uh, the details are still being investigated, but from what Twitter looks like, a, uh, a movie at the scene, uh, it looks like basically a white guy terrorist trying to deliberately run over Muslims outside of the mosque. So we now have the... I mean, London's just had a rough, a rough few months. They had several terrorist attacks where Muslims were trying to kill random citizens, and now you've got these ridiculous fucking people trying to retaliate. Uh, it's got some hallmarks of back during the IRA era where Catholics and Protestants were constantly fighting for decades. So thoughts and prayers go out to the people in the UK. Hopefully things settle down there soon enough. Here in domestic politics, our own terracotta tojo is going out of his way to make us just like North Korea. And one of the most bizarre friggin' cabinet meetings that I think I've ever seen broadcast since my birth. Let me hear. So there's a five, six minute clip of Trump just going around the room at his cabinet meeting. And everyone is sitting here doing like this, Dear leader, thank you so much for being amazing bullshit. And that's not the purpose of a fucking cabinet meeting. I mean, typically when the public portion of cabinet meetings, the cabinet officials sit around a table, the media comes in and takes pictures, someone shouts a question, no one answers it, and then everybody leaves. And you go on and have the cabinet meeting. But here, let me give you this clip. Now, this is a very long clip. It is six minutes long. Just listen to this foolishness.
1: Most of you know most of the people around the room, but I'm going to start with our, our vice president. We'll just go around and just... You name your position, and then we'll ask these folks to uh, go back and have a good day, and we're going to discuss our various reports. Mike. thank you, Mr. President. And uh, just
2: the greatest privilege of my life is to serve as, as Vice President to a President who's keeping his word to the American people. Mr. President, it's right to be here and celebrate this group. You set the exact right message, and this being responded. The response is fabulous around the country.
1: Great success. Mr. President, um, I'm privileged to be here, uh, deeply honored, and I want to thank you for keeping your commitment to the American workers. Mr. President, honored to be on the team. Uh, This last week, I had the great privilege to represent America uh, at China at the Green Energy Ministerial. Uh, Good timing. Uh, They needed to hear why America was stepping away from the Paris Accord, and they did. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a new day at the United Nations. You know, we now have a very strong voice. People know what the United States is for, they know what we're against, and they see us leading across the board. And so, I think the international community knows we're back.
2: Mr. President, thank you for the kind words about the budget. Uh, you're absolutely right, we are going to be able to take care of the people who really need it. And at the same time, with your direction, we were able to also focus on the forgotten man and woman who are the folks who are paying those taxes. So I appreciate your support and your direction in uh, pulling that budget together. <coughs> Thank you, Mayor. Good morning, Mr. President. It's good to be back in the United States. I actually arrived back this morning at 1 o'clock from Italy And the G7 summit, uh, focused on the environment, and our message there was uh, the United States is going to be focused on growth and protecting the environment. It was received well. Good morning, Mr. President. Uh, the intelligence community has never faced such a diversity of threats to our country and we're going to provide continue to provide you with the very best intelligence we can so you can formulate policies to deal with these issues
1: Mr. President it's a privilege to serve to serve the students of this country and to work to ensure that every child has an equal opportunity to get a great education President uh, what an incredible honor it is to, to uh, lead the Department of Health and Human Services at this pivotal time under your leadership uh, I
2: can't thank you enough for the the privilege that you've given me, the leadership that you've shown,
1: Mr. President, as your seal uh, <laughs> on your staff, that's true.
2: And uh, it's an honor to be your steward of our public lands and the generator of energy dominance.
1: Uh, Mr. President, thank you, thank you for the honor to serve the country. It's a great privilege you've given me. Mr.
2: President, it's an honor to represent the men and women of the Department of Defense, and we are grateful uh, for the sacrifices our people are making in order to strengthen. Them. Our militaries, our diplomats, always negotiate from a position of
0: strength. President, thank you for the opportunity to help fix the trade deficit and other things. I'm thrilled to have it. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. I can't. I just can't deal with this anymore. Now, look, this goes on for another three and a half minutes. You hear from Ryan's Priebus and the guy running Mike Pompeo, the guy running the CIA, and it's just so God, like, this is, this is third world dictator bullshit, you know what I mean? Now, I will say this, props to Secretary of Defense Mattis. If you listen to that, he was the only one, the only one that thanked anyone other than Trump. He thanked the people serving in our armed forces. So I stand by my position at this point that Mattis is the only one left who has anything even resembling a shred of dignity. In addition to the bizarre cabinet meeting, of course, the president can't stay off of Twitter. He admitted this week that he's being investigated by the uh, special counsel, Robert Mueller, for interfering, obstructing justice in a tweet that says, quote, I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director, witch hunt. Now, what was fascinating is watching Trump surrogates then try and walk that back and say, no, he's actually not being investigated. And on Fox News Sunday, just yesterday, there was this hilarious interview between Chris Wallace and Jay Sekulow, who is one of the Trump legal advisors. I've got just a teeny tiny clip of this. It's about two minutes, but I want you to listen to it because it highlights what I talked about last week where we have these incompetent motherfuckers making a shitload of money ripping off the American people listen to this clip.
2: The president takes action based on numerous events, including recommendations from his attorney general and the deputy attorney general's office. He takes the action that they also, by the way, recommended. And now he's being investigated by the Department of Justice, because the special counsel under the special counsel regulations reports still to the Department of Justice, not an independent counsel. So he's being investigated for taking the action that the attorney general, and deputy attorney general recommended him to take by the agency who recommended the termination. So that's the
1: constitutional threshold question here. And that's why, I, I, as I said, no well, investigation. I, what, what's, what's the question? You just, I mean, no, you, sure. you've, stated, you've stated some facts. First of all, you've now said that he is yeah. being investigated after saying that you didn't. No. You, you just said, no, he's sir. he's not being that investigated. Be, you just said that he's being investigated.
2: No, Chris, I said that the, inve- anything, let me be crystal clear so you completely understand. We have not received, nor are we aware of any investigation of the president of the
1: United States, Sir, you just said two times that he's being investigated.
2: No. The context of the tweet, I just gave you the legal theory, Chris, of how the Constitution works. If, in fact, it was correct that the president was being investigated, he would be investigating for taking action that an agency told him to take. So that is protected under the Constitution as his Article One power. That's all I said. So I appreciate you trying to rephrase it, but I'm just being no,
1: really direct, I, I, with you sir, here, I didn't Chris. rephrase this it. The is, table speak, be, uh, Jay, this tape speak. Jay, the tape speak for itself. You said he is being investigated, and it's not Chris, just, being, and, and, wait minute, just Wait a minute, wait a minute, Jay. And it's not Chris, Jay. Not fair, it's Chris. not just being investigated for firing Comey. There's also the question of what he said to Comey when Comey was still the FBI director. So there's more he, than just the fact that he fired Comey. Chris, let me be clear. You asked me a question about what the
2: president's tweet was regarding uh, the deputy attorney general of the United States. That's what you asked me. And I responded to what that legal theory would be. So I do not appreciate you putting words in my mouth when I've been crystal clear that the president is not and has not been under investigation.
1: I don't think I could be any clearer than that. Well, you don't know that he's not under investigation again, sir. I mean, you, you might... I
2: cannot read the. You're right, Chris. I can't read the mind. Well, of good. the special OK, prosecutor. so we're in agreement. You don't but know I've whether he's under, you don't know whether, no whether he's under, under investigation. That he you is. don't know whether he's under investigation
1: sense, like, or not. Question I'm asking you, know, you is: Does he think that Rod now, Rosen... Now, of course,
0: it goes on from there. This back and forth, where everyone's talking over everyone else, and you can't understand what the hell is being said. But did you notice about 20-ish seconds in, he said, and now he's being investigated, which he promptly denied. And did you also catch the fact that he doesn't understand the Constitution? He talked about President Trump's Article One powers. Now, I don't want to spoil it for those of you who are listening in other countries, but go pull up the Constitution, check Article 1, and see whose powers there's talking about. This is something where if I screwed this up on the bar exam, I wouldn't have a law license. Totally blows my mind that this guy's getting paid bizarre sums of money by the leader of the free world to give, one, probably terrible advice if his presentation on Fox News is any indication, but then also just a completely inadequate, terrible advocate for the president on TV. That was ridiculous. On Friday, Trump released his financial disclosure forms, admitting that he is not in fact a billionaire. He only has about a billion dollars in assets, but then also has several hundred million dollars in debt owed to companies that will be seeking legislation from Congress and favorable regulations from the executive branch. No conflict of interest there at all. But even though we don't have his tax forms, these disclosure reports uh, are required by law and it highlights the fact that your guy who claims he's worth $10 billion uh, is worth less than $8 billion. In addition, that has prompted a lawsuit from congressional Democrats about the emoluments clause. We do have a clause in the Constitution that says... Quote, "no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall without the consent of the Congress accept of any present emolument office or title of any kind whatever from any king prince or foreign state one of the concerns that people have is that by continuing to run his businesses" and those businesses sell to foreign states, that the president is violating that clause. Uh, Saudi Arabia in particular disclosed fairly recently that they spent uh, a quarter of a million dollars just booking the Trump Hotel in D.C. for assorted conferences. I'm sure that has absolutely no relation at all whatsoever to the several billion dollars in arms that we're selling to them so they can engage in the civil war in Yemen. Completely unrelated, I'm sure. In criminal justice news, a judge in Clark County, Nevada, has vacated a murder conviction of Jamar Matthews when the prosecutor told 12 white jurors that in order to find them guilty, you just had to look at them. The prosecutor said, quote, How innocent do they look to you? Take a look over there. How innocent do they look? And it was noted in the appellate decision that the only way they looked was black. There was nothing otherwise particularly distinguishable about them. So the judge has vacated that murder conviction and sent the case back for a retrial. In New Jersey, a police sergeant was driving drunk at a rate more than double the legal limit and ended up losing control of his car, took out two separate yards before rolling his vehicle in some trees. You know, really, thank God for landscaping, because if there were not this berm and these trees in the way, this guy would have taken out someone's house. But those are your police in New Jersey. You may recall from our previous episode that New Jersey police officers also pulled an innocent victim from a burning car, beat the shit out of him, and then dragged him into the street. Apparently, they also like to drive drunk in their spare time. Uh, A lot of jail news video has come out regarding Charles Wade in the Montgomery County Jail in Dayton, Ohio, where he's fully strapped to a restraint chair, can't move at all. And corrections officers decide to blast him with pepper spray twice anyway for sport. Uh, in my home state of Virginia, uh, in the Hampton Roads Jail, a 60-year-old man, Henry Stewart, died when he collapsed to the ground, was foaming at the mouth. Inmates tried to flag correctional officers to get him medical attention, and the officers said, quote, I'm busy right now. So that 60-year-old man has died. Uh, Down in Florida, video was released of a 75-year-old man, William Howard, 75 years old, in the Orange County Jail, and correction officers snapped his neck. There's actually police uh, footage that has been released where they just completely fucked this guy up. He had a snapped neck and died. in regular non-jail deaths, the day we released last week's podcast, podcast wasn't even out for more than an hour, police in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, along the lakefront, uh, are chasing a guy who didn't stop for a traffic violation, and they're shooting out of the window of their squad car, end up killing 19-year-old um, Terry Williams, as well as shooting his passenger, completely innocent woman, Paula McEwen, uh, who was shot in the shoulder. Williams is dead. And McEwen is hospitalized. And you might recall from, I think, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that police are just kind of roaming around shooting people as they drive, not knowing whether or not there are innocent victims inside the car. You might recall from almost a month ago, uh, a sheriff's deputy here in North Carolina helped flip a van filled with several teenage girls who all died. So that's the criminal justice system at work up in Sheriff David Clark's country. Oh, I forgot to mention about him. So Sheriff Clark, you might recall, is the officially Democrat because he's too much of a pussy to run as a Republican and lose. Sheriff in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, his jails are where people die because the deputies don't give them water. Well, this clown show was actually offered a job in the Department of Homeland Security. It was released soon after that he plagiarized his, I think his master's or doctoral thesis or whatever it was, plagiarized something in college. And that several of the pins he wears on his uniform are just random bullshit with actually no tie at all whatsoever to anything he does as a sheriff. He's actually since withdrawn his acceptance of that position because apparently he's not going to be allowed to abuse enough people working for the federal government. So he wants to stick to killing inmates in Milwaukee. Up in Seattle, we have a woman who called police because she was concerned about a break-in. She actually called asking police for help, uh, and police ended up killing her. 30-year-old Charlena Lyles, seven months pregnant, mother of four, called police seeking help, and they decided to shoot her dead because when she opened the door, she had a knife. And rather than try and reason with someone, nowadays we just go ahead and shoot them, even though the woman called police seeking assistance. Also turns out the woman had been struggling with uh, some mental health issues. Probably no surprise there, uh, but she is now dead. In the world of puppy side, uh, we had an officer shoot and kill a dog in the middle of a deli shop on Hollywood Boulevard in uh, Los Angeles, California. Ended up just shooting a dog in the middle of the shop. Uh, not to be outdone, police in Nevada, a deputy has gotten a, a call from Um, about an alleged alarm in Nye County, Nevada. And they go to the door, knocks on the door. There's camera of the dog owned by that particular owner just walking around the corner very nicely because, hey, there's someone knocking on the door. This could be a friend. They ended up, he shoots the dog dead, and then takes the body, has it cremated without ever telling the owner. They're basically destroying the evidence. If there wasn't the video, no one would ever have known that would happen. So if you think they just abuse black people, if you think they just abuse old people, if they think they just abuse young people, you're wrong. Police also like to kill a lot of dogs. So that covers our criminal justice updates. Let's go ahead and switch into this interview with my friend Harold Respass of the Respass Report podcast, Uh, one of the two people that got me into podcasting. I hope you like it. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. This is our first ever Skype interview with a guest. And I have with us Harold Respass from the Respass Report podcast. Harold, how are you?
3: Greg, I am great. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. So a lot of interesting political stuff in the news. Um, Found out that the jury acquitted the police officer that killed Philando Castile. Our Papaya POTUS has been attacking uh, Rod Rosenstein, which was hilarious. He had a meltdown on Twitter uh, recently. But before we get into that, I, I want listeners to kind of understand who you are. So give me a little bit about your background. Where are you from? How did you get into uh, where you are today?
3: Sure. So first, thank you for, for having me on the podcast, Greg. We go back a ways. So I'm pretty honored to be your first guest on the the wonderful, wonderful Fiscal podcast. I'm a faithful listener. So thank you for the opportunity to, to talk to your audience here today. Um, just some quick background about me. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. was born and grew up there. Lived the first 18 years of my life there. Single-parent household. Didn't have much. Uh, I think part of the political foundation that I have and why I have some of the values that I have today is because of my upbringing. You know, I was poor, grew up, had to take advantage of Medicaid at times. Um, that was the health insurance that I had growing up. Um, there were some years we had to depend on food stamps or EBT, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I definitely understand what a lot of people are going through in this country and it made me, um, it shaped who I am today and what I believe in some of the values I espouse. Um, so well, I grew up I, in Charlotte there. Saying,
0: I, I'm going to pa- pause you there though, because you said that you grew up poor and that kind of gave you an appreciation for, you know, people that are struggling. But when you and I met, we met in college and you were not yes. a typical Democrat.
3: I was not, I was not. Um, so I think that, While I was very much into politics, I think that my introduction to politics in my formative years was really through the election of George W. Bush and following the Bush administration. And I think that some of the news that I was consuming then tended to be on the right end of the spectrum. And so I enjoyed watching George W. Bush. It wasn't until I learned more about his policies and learned more about that vampire Dick Cheney uh, that I learned, you know, that maybe I'm not really feeling... Um, this particular political persuasion. Um, so I think learning more about George W. Bush and not being so wrapped up in the personality and um, kind of the the outskirts of the presidency, if you will, um, started to really transform how I thought. And then just researching some of the issues that uh, separated Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives. And so I've definitely gone on a, a pendulum swing, but my, my roots are essentially um, growing up poor, not having anything, um, and then kind of having life experiences Take me on, a, on an ideological journey.
0: My liberal listeners are going to flip out that you just praised George W. Bush. I hope you know that.
3: <laughs> well, you know, I'm used to people flipping out on me online.
0: <laughs> so let, let me give them a little bit of background so y'all Harold and I met when I was in college at NC State University uh, at the time I was the president of the University of North Carolina Association of Student Governments which was a student government body that represented all 17 institutions that are part of what we call the Consolidated University of North Carolina now Harold if I remember correctly you were student body president at Winston-Salem State University at the time I believe we met when I was the vice president
3: and was attending oh, yeah. ASG. That's right, because you, you, know, a a,
0: you were under Terrell Stevens back then.
3: Yep, Terrell was the president when I was the vice president, and I think that's when I got introduced to, to ASG and met you in that time frame, and then we started actually working together when I was student body president.
0: That's right, that's right. So what made you pick Winston-Salem State? So that's one of five historically black colleges in the UNC system. How'd you end up becoming a Ram?
3: Total accident that I went to a HBCU. Most people – you're not going to hear many people say that. Total accident. So my sister uh, went to Winston-Salem State University, and she's 13 years older than me. She's class of 1996. I'm class of 2009, so that gives you the sense of the gap. Um, And so Winston-Salem State University – besides Johnson C. Smith, was the first college campus I'd ever seen. And so I went to, my sister, I believe I was five years old when we moved her into Winston-Salem State. And so that was kind of the college that was sort of on my radar. Going through high school, I went to Harding University High School, which at the time was a great uh, you know, college preparatory high school, particularly for black students in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And when it came time to apply to colleges, I knew I was going to apply to Winston-Salem State. Um, and my sister was involved in the alumni network there and was hoping that She would be able to kind of massage me through the process and make sure that I I got the financial aid that I needed and met the people I needed to meet to be successful there. And then I applied to a few other schools. I applied to North Carolina Central University and I applied to the University of North Carolina Greensboro just to have applications out there. I wasn't as focused then as I am now, but I, I knew that I wanted to go to college. And not really, outside of my older sister who kind of guided me through that college application process along with counselors like Don Slaughter, at Harding, and some others. Ms. Stroud, who I, whose son also went to Winston-Salem State with me. I wasn't as focused, but they guided me through that process um, and I ended up tossing out that application in Winston-Salem State. I applied to UNCG, as I mentioned, in North Carolina Central. And Winston-Salem State, I believe it was Christmas Eve or, the day, or two days before Christmas of my, I guess it would have been my senior year, um, when I got the acceptance package from Winston-Salem State, which also came with a Dean scholarship offer. So it was my first acceptance. It came with a scholarship. And I hadn't heard from North Carolina Central or UNCG and wouldn't hear from them for some time after that. Um, So it just made sense. It was the first campus I'd ever been to. They were the first ones to accept me and offer me money. And I ended up there. Did not pick it because it was a historically black college. Actually had no idea what a historically black college was in the first place when I applied and got accepted to Winston-Salem State. But I found out not long after arriving there what an HBCU was all about.
0: Well, I hear you on that. I didn't know what an HBCU was either until I got involved in ASG. And I was was really oblivious to the history. Uh, A lot of the civil rights cases that we hear about, things like, you know, Brown v. Board of Education, a lot of that uh, precedent was actually took place in North Carolina. Uh, So for those of you that have followed me on Twitter, you might have heard me mention the case of McKissick v. Carmichael, which involved students at North Carolina Central University School of Law. Um, Well, some of them ended up there. They were applying to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Law and were denied on account of the fact that Central's Law School existed, so that's where they were supposed to go because they were people of color. And the Fourth Circuit actually ordered that Chapel Hill's Law School be desegregated. This was several years before Brown v. Board So there's a really rich history in North Carolina that I wasn't aware of before I got involved in student government. So let me ask you this. You mentioned earlier that George W. Bush kind of was your introduction into politics. Is that why you got into student government? How did you end up doing that? So
3: I got obsessed with politics in ninth grade. So I had a I had ELPS, which was like economic, legal and political systems in the ninth grade, which was with a teacher called Brian Petoniak, who I do believe is still teaching um, somewhere in the suburbs of Charlotte. I forget the county, but I think I Googled him recently. And he introduced me to politics in ELP. And I just instantly fell in love. You know how you just, you get introduced to something new, and you're just like, man, and you just sink your teeth into it? Right. <laughs> that's really That's really how I felt about government and politics. And I just became obsessed with it. So in high school, I was a kids voting precinct captain for multiple years. Um, based on getting introduced to politics. So there's a, a Lutheran Church, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I led the kids voting precinct there for three years straight, you know, organized all that myself. I was in a debate club at Harding because I just love to you know, bat around <laughs> ideas, as you're well aware. <laughs> and so uh, you know, I'll, I'll take on all comers when it comes to you know, fleshing out ideas. Uh, my Facebook page is, is evidence of that. Um, so once I got introduced to government and politics, I just started wrapping my, my mind in that world and just trying to dig in you know, being immature and not really experienced in the world and how things really worked i under you know I just took in what I could and, and started to follow politics and the political news because I felt like it was really important for me to know what was going on because I felt like people around me really didn't know what was going on um, and so i just I just got into it and so politics was my number one passion outside of pro wrestling, which is my other big uh, my other big interest area. I'm super weirdo um, and so I got to Winston-Salem State, and uh, as I mentioned, I didn't know I was going to an HBCU. I didn't really understand what the college environment was going to be. I wasn't a particularly social kid growing up, and so when I got to college, I was in shock. I was in culture shock. I was in you know social shock, and I retreated, and basically my freshman year was me spent in my dorm room when I wasn't in class. Then coming out of the freshman year, no one ran for sophomore class president. Coming out of my freshman year, Um, I believe there was some issue with the 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 president that I had my freshman year. No one no one uh, ran. So I applied. They had an application process they opened up. And I put in an application for a sophomore class president. Not having been involved in any activities, <laughs> in, you know, in my freshman year, I applied for this this position. And so the student activities director at the time, I think basically, and whoever else was involved in the decision-making process, basically said, thanks, but no thanks. And But we do have this sophomore class representative position available. Would you like that? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and so um, I became a sophomore class representative. And I served on the sophomore class council and then I was looking around and I was like, well, it's not going to be very difficult to have some influence around here. You just got to learn the system, meet people and make some connections. And you could actually um, go as high as you want in student government. And so it started for me on the sophomore class council, I got it. So
0: that's kind of like the. Uh the Winston-Salem State equivalent of NC State Student Senate?
3: Yeah, I think we, we might have some similar paths in terms of the roundabout way in which we got to our positions <laughs> of power in student
0: <laughs> government. I was going to say, you're kind of like the Gerald Ford of uh, student government, where you, you uh, did not come in planning to be president, but that's ultimately where you ended up. Absolutely. So let's talk a bit um, about your, your time as president. What what was that like? I mean, what did you do during your tenure as student body president as WSSU?
3: So I think it's interesting. I can't talk about my tenure as student body president of Winston-Salem State without talking about becoming the vice president of internal affairs under Terrell Stevens. So in my Uh, sophomore year on the sophomore class council, I decided that I wanted to move up the food chain. And there's two vice president positions and a student government president position, as you know. Um, At a lot of our schools, we have the multiple vice presidents. And so, I was eyeing vice president of internal affairs because it wasn't the one that dealt with homecoming, of which I would have had nothing to (laughs) offer the students of Winston-Salem State. Um, And it was more policy-oriented, and allegedly it also ran the student senate, which was non-existent at Winston-Salem State at the time. And so, I said, you Know what? If I can get this position, I can influence policy and I could revive the student Senate or at least make an attempt. And that would be a significant contribution. And then I'd also be in the chain of command, which would be super important, actually second in command um, in the whole overall apparatus. And so I was with Terrell Stevens, who was the president my senior year. It's important to note that Terrell and I were not exactly on good terms when this all started, because <laughs> I was campaigning for his opponent in the, in the election cycle. Uh, We were both political science majors and in classes together, but outside of that, I was working with his opponent. Wasn't really that politically savvy because I probably would have understood at the time that we weren't exactly going to be on the same page when this all started out. So we had a few meetings of the minds, and ultimately, I just decided, hey, I'm going to do my best to make him successful. I'm going to support him. I'm going to do what I need to do to make this administration successful. And we bonded and, and became close, and we had a pretty good year, although, as you may remember, um, that was the time that Chancellor Donald Reeves came in, uh, which was a, a pretty interesting time for, for the Winston-Salem State community. He wasn't exactly well-liked by a lot of people. So there was some there was some tension between the student government and, um, and, and Chancellor Reeves, which Terrell was right in the thick of, and I was obviously right there by his side. So I have to talk about that time because that's really where I went from just being around to being in the mix. I won Vice President of Internal Affairs by seven votes, Greg, seven votes. So I squeaked in to the number two position in student government just because I campaigned my ass off. Nobody outworks me. So after that, I ran for, for student body president and won that campaign handily based on my work as the vice president. So that's a long, I, I had to give you that ramp up because I think it's important to show that it wasn't like I was just some born student body president and waiting. I scraped and clawed and went around corners and, and did what I had to do in order to get, get to that place. Right. Um, so, that. so my time as president is what you really wanted to know. It was interesting. So coming off the heels of a red hot, you know, Jeb Bush versus Donald Trump type feud between the student body president and the chancellor the previous year. Um, It was some interesting, interesting stuff uh, that I had had to deal with. So the very first order of business was establishing a relationship between the chancellor and the student government that was positive, which, which was difficult. It did not start off on the right foot, but ultimately. Uh, cooler heads prevailed, and we were able to become a team and get some some cool stuff done. You know, so I won't go into, you know, obviously a resume of stuff that happened 10 years ago, but we were focused on the basics. Campus safety is important. A lot of HBCUs aren't in the best neighborhoods, and so you're obviously looking for what's going on with lighting, what's going on with campus police, you know, as you would probably care about. What are we doing about um, marijuana and the frequency in which people are getting busted and punished for that. Um, you know, bringing back student senate and making sure that there's actually a governance apparatus. Um, I served on the Board of Trustees, a voting member of the Board of Trustees, and was super involved there. I read all the materials. I went to all the committee meetings. I served on the strategic planning committee. um, And actually, one of my my great LinkedIn recommendations is from the consulting firm that ran that strategic planning process for Winston-Salem State, talking about the great work that I did um, on that, that strategic planning committee. So a lot of cool things. I think what really came out of that student government experience is that I realized that I know the college campus environment and the higher ed administration environment like the back of my hand, it's very easy for me to navigate. And so that moved me into, you know, my early career after college and getting a master's in higher education and student affairs and ultimately working at, at several universities.
0: I was like, yeah, after after uh, you graduated, you didn't stay in North Carolina. I mean, walk me through your path to where you are now.
3: Sure. So I, you know, because I was so involved in the student government, you know, I I'd have this idea. And if you if you were to dig up my campaign website, so when I ran for student government, um, they talk about me wanting to be a federal government administrator. That was my <laughs> generic answer about what I wanted to do when I grew up. And so I realized, you know, after a few meetings with Dr. Melody Pierce, who was the vice chancellor for student affairs at the, at the time, I realized that I really had no idea what I wanted to do in the federal government, but I was really good at navigating the hierarchy of higher education. I knew how to push the buttons. I knew how to get what I wanted done. I knew how to move policy. And so she, I would say, I wouldn't say coerced is the right word, but um, she nudged me along towards going to graduate school to work in higher education administration. And I think I acquiesced because it just made sense. So I applied to a number of higher education programs. I had a full tuition, you know, full scholarship offer to uh, be a graduate assistant within the student affairs department at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And then I applied to New York University. I have some family roots in New York. And so I was like, all right, well, if I go there, I'll have somewhat of a support system. And it's a major name. They came with a very good offer in terms of scholarship. And so I ended up going to uh, New York to study higher education and student affairs at New York University. And the two years I was in that master's program, I worked in the financial aid office at NYU, which at the time, and it may still be, the most expensive college in the country, tuition-wise. So... You can imagine working in financial aid at that institution was quite an experience.
0: It was a pretty fascinating transition going from growing up in a poor family in Charlotte, having to rely on Medicaid and EBT to now you're not only at the most expensive college you know, up there, but you're part of the financial aid team. Uh, working in that office, helping other students make it.
3: My friend, when you look at, you see families come in for like the visiting days and they've got sweaters tied around the dad's neck and the BMW emblem hanging off the keychain. You're looking at all their financial information (laughs) and then they're telling you that they can't afford to send their kid there. And you're like, well, you know, maybe that second or third house, (laughs) you might want to, you know, maybe if you had thought about your kid's college then, perhaps we would not be having you in here begging me and telling me of all people, that you can't afford to send your kid here. Um, <laughs> so that was it. Was it was a, it was somewhat of an infuriating experience to be to be real with you. Um, it was very eye-opening and and understanding the at, at one of the most expensive schools in the country, if not the most expensive at that time, to see the position that everybody came from in trying to get in. It really opened my my eyes about a couple of things: the horrible condition of skyrocketing tuition, this arms race in higher education. Um, in terms of uh, of the prices, the crazy, crazy inequality among you know ethnic groups, among people from different countries, among people from different parts of the country, it was just a super, super enlightening experience. And then, of course, I did not continue in financial aid because it was very stressful. How many people can punch the wall in your office out of frustration with their aid package before you realize that uh, maybe it's not the uh, not the greatest place to work?
0: Need something um, a little bit
3: happier. Yeah, something a little bit happier. It could be depressing to tell people no all the time and crush their dreams.
0: Right, I hear you on that. So, um, what, what did you end up doing after the uh, work at NYU?
3: So, I transitioned about three blocks up the street to a university called the New School. I'm not sure if you ever heard of it, but it's a, a, a very liberal institution, non traditional, started with graduate programs before they started their undergraduate um, sector. The Parsons School of Design is based out of the new school, so people who are familiar with the Project Runway show, they would be – Uh, familiar with the new school based upon that. And I worked there in graduate admissions, um, which is my first job after my master's, admitting people to graduate programs, master's programs in public policy and international affairs, etc., traveling the country to graduate school fairs, talking to people about those programs. And so that was sort of me transitioning, staying in the enrollment management sector, moving from financial aid to graduate admissions. But then I realized that I wanted to kind of move where the money was. And so the money comes in, obviously, with the students and the admissions process. But I'm like, I want to be a little higher up in the food chain. I kind of have that thing about me. And so I ended up going to the alumni relations department at the new school. So I moved over there and was responsible for all the alumni uh, relations communications and social media and outreach for the 60,000 alumni for the university. And you know, had that job. It was wonderful. And then I was looking for a change. So I left there. I went to Bard College, which is I guess almost in upstate New York, I started their alumni relations program from scratch for their high school early colleges where the students get their associate's degree and their high school diploma at the same time. I started their alumni relations program and then a startup, which I'll leave nameless, plucked me out of that job and that kind of moved me into the tech space where I am now Um, and so I went out to California and worked for a video conferencing uh, tech startup for almost two years. And then I moved to Amazon, which brought me back to the East Coast, and I work for Amazon's business right now. Um, And the longest short of what I do at Amazon is I help universities spend their money in a more efficient and effective manner, period, but especially when it relates to Amazon.
0: But it sounds to me like you sold out. I thought you were a Bernie bro. What happened?
3: Well, I definitely didn't sell out. I'm not. I'm still in the higher education space. I'm still helping universities do things better. I'm just on the outside rather than suck on one campus.
0: I got you. I got you. So let's talk politics. I mean, this whole time you were up in New York, sure. I got to imagine that was a culture change compared to being in North Carolina for 20 something years.
3: Well, my mom is a New Yorker. So I grew up with a single mom who's a New Yorker. So I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I'd taken a few a couple of summers in New York. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've got some roots there. So it wasn't a foreign place, to me. I had spent some time, but definitely it moves faster. It's much more expensive. People are much shorter until to the point people don't say hello, they don't really greet each other, people will bum rush you and move you out of the way if you aren't moving fast enough on the sidewalk. So there's definitely some differences. But I'm also sort of a loner type and can be somewhat abrasive myself. So I think I kind of fit in. You fit in.
0: (laughs) Are there any Republicans in New York? I mean, I'm not really familiar with it. I've got family up there that are distant relatives. I haven't been since I was maybe, you know, a very young teenager.
3: So there are Republicans in New York. They're kind of the upstate, you know, upstate New York is, you know, is more, more or less, rural America. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's obviously liberals there, but it's, it's not much different than being somewhere in the south or the Midwest. And so a lot of Trump votes came from up there in New York. And then out on Long Island, um, out east, you've got some Republicans out there. And then there's a few wealthy, ritzy Republicans that are in Manhattan. But overall, it's, it's a very, very blue state. Got it.
0: Got it. So you walked through, you were in college during the Obama years. Yep. Then after that, you got out. You're now working for these universities. We end up with the 2016 election. Walk me through kind of your political evolution because you've gone from, you know, being very – I don't want to say republican-ish, but I mean when I met you you were you were an independent and you were okay with George W. Bush. How did you end up by the time 2016 rolled around?
3: You know, I would say that that George W. Bush phase was 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 pretty brief. That was kind of my my early years kind of scratching the surface of politics. I think I I pretty I moved pretty swiftly over to to the liberal side. Interestingly enough, in the 2008 election, I still catch heat because I was for Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary, which when you fast forward to 2016, really shocks people because of how anti-Hillary Clinton I was um in the Democratic primary. <laughs> well, hold on, let me um, pause you.
0: Why were you in favor <laughs> of Hillary Clinton in 2008?
3: I'm I did not buy the hope and change shit that Obama was selling. I just wasn't it, it it didn't speak to me. And a lot of people, especially people at HBCUs, were super inspired, not only because he was going to be potentially the first black president, but because his message was inspiring. It was uplifting. It was very hopey and changey. And I just was not buying it. I was in my head. I'm like, that's not how Washington works. You don't just come and say you're going to be a nice guy and that we're going to try to do good things and people just roll over. And I feel somewhat vindicated in a sense that obviously the Republicans set their goal to destroy him from day one. So I was I feel like I was kind of vindicated in that perspective, but I just wasn't buying it. You know, I felt that, you know, the Clintons at that time, I felt were were well positioned to kind of keep things moving because they, Hillary Clinton, was espousing what I felt was a more realistic path to actually moving things through that wasn't sur- surrounding um, hope and change. Yeah, but um, how so is really how important.
0: is she all that different from John McCain though? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. So I've already mentioned this to my uh, to my listeners. I voted for Obama in two thousand and eight because I, did too. I, I thought McCain After was he, he, too Hillary liberal. <laughs> right. Fair enough. But I mean, so in your mind, what was it that made Hillary, you know, just the fact that she's a political operator and knew how to get things through D.C.? Yeah. So I
3: so and I had this debate with Dr. Larry Little, who was a professor at Winston-Salem State at the time, former Black Panther, very, very pro-Obama. And he brought me into his office and grilled me for 45 minutes about why I was not outwardly supporting Barack Obama as a campus leader. And I just went toe to toe with him back on back and forth on issues, not really trying to say that I thought that Obama was a horrible candidate. I just felt that his message didn't ring true to me as a person in terms of the hope and change aspect of it. That was really what I based it on. I felt that Washington was a much more cynical place and that he was selling people a dream. Um, not that he was a bad person, not that his policy or platform was awful. I just didn't see the vision that he was painting at that particular time compared to the more much more pragmatic approach that I felt I was getting from from Hillary Clinton. So I voted so I voted for Hillary Clinton in the primary, which really you know really didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But so and then once he beat her, I was proud to vote for Barack Obama. and I as a student government person, I threw a watch party to watch him beat John McCain. I still got the videos and the pictures of that. Um, so I was very much, you know, for Obama, but after he vanquished Hillary Clinton in 2008.
0: Well, so no, I was going to say, so how is it that in 2016, you weren't still in favor of Hillary Clinton?
3: I learned a lot more about Hillary Clinton in the time, uh, in, in the time from the, from the 2000, 2008 election. I, I, I realized that although she was she came across as really pragmatic and sensible in 2008, I'll use the term that you threw out. She was definitely a political operator. And some of the things that 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 came across to me about Hillary Clinton just didn't didn't feel right. It felt much different. And I was obviously much more informed eight years later. So the thing and I, I shared this video a number of times, her lying about being shot at in Bosnia was something that really irked me when you watch the video of her coming into Bosnia and waving and, and kissing children. And then she describes how she was flying in low under sniper fire like the world was on fire and ending. You know, and then you know when you watch the video of her fake apology, oh I I I made a mistake. You know, she that's just one example of her being willing to say anything. I didn't pick that up in 2008. I'll be honest with you. Um, that, that, that wasn't really what rang to me about her. Obviously, the, the Wall Street speeches, and not the fact that she got paid to speak to people and got paid a lot of money. A lot of people do that. The fact that she lied about it over and over and over again, the fact that she said she was going to release it, didn't release it, she obviously has something to hide, which we found out, I think, part of, partly through the WikiLeaks that she was saying exactly what people thought she was saying. Um, in a lot of those speeches then of course you know the big thing was the email and people always get on me you know with the what about her emails i think that the email thing you know people have their opinions on it i won't dive into it however the fact that she was just so brazen about lying and, and downplaying it and you know partially remembering what happened and a new excuse every couple of months about what was the purpose of it it was just very very hollow um, and obviously there was something going on. Do I think that, you know, lock her up was the appropriate thing to happen? No. But the fact that she was just such a, uh, a um, she was so deceitful at times and and, and so untrustworthy. Um, I just wasn't comfortable with her in comparison to her competition in the primary, who was, of course, uh, c- of course Bernie Sanders, who I supported heavily, donated to, volunteered for. And then when she vanquished him, I was all in for Hillary. Just as like in 2008, when Obama vanquished her, I was all in for Obama. And here we are with President Pumpkin Spice.
0: So I guess my question is, do you think that Bernie weakened Hillary? Having that Extended primary competition made it easier for Trump to win.
3: I don't think so because if anyone extended a primary, it was Hillary Clinton in 2008. Um, so I, I think that we should just expect that primaries go in, into the summer. I think a lot of folks will will say that Bernie's questions about her her character and her you know suggesting that she might be corrupt you know might have weakened her in the mind of of a lot of voters who ended up voting for Donald Trump are staying home. I personally don't buy that, I'm probably biased, but I think that had Bernie Sanders not brought that up in the primary, it would've come up in the general. I don't think that Hillary Clinton would've escaped without people bringing up the fact that she was paid to speak to Wall Street, without people bringing up the fact that she had been deceitful about a lot of different things. The Clinton Foundation stuff came up without Bernie Sanders ever talking about it. So I don't think that, while it's helpful, people's cause to pin it on Bernie Sanders and say, oh, well, he beat her up so bad that she stumbled into the primary like a, you know, defeated boxer and and didn't have much left, much juice left to fight Trump. I just don't buy that. I think that she was a flawed candidate from the beginning. She was not trusted. Her honest and trustworthy numbers were horrible. I think the only person with worse numbers was Donald Trump. And I think either way, she was going to stagger into that general election. And now we know what happened.
0: So let's talk a bit about Post November 9th, what's it like for you as a as a former Bernie bro, black male in the Northeast under right. a Trump presidency? I mean, what goes through your mind when you wake up in the morning?
3: Well, the first thing that goes through my mind is that I hate the term Bernie bro. By the way, um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let me pause. So, I'm just gonna say I like Bernie Sanders' positions on court reform, but other than that, I think the guy's a nut. I don't think his economic plans have even the slightest chance of doing anything without completely destroying the economy his foreign policy was questionable I struggle to think how people were able to support him other than the fact one he seemed genuine and two he gave a better speech than Hillary did so I'm I'm accustomed to referring to people as Bernie bros because it just seems very kind of you know I don't know I mean it's very clannish you know what I mean and I I don't mean like the KKK but I mean like a click
3: I got you I I I think that it's going to it's going to rest along the lines of our ideological difference, because I think that while some of Bernie's proposals were wildly unrealistic in the short arc of time, I think that more and more the American people are realizing that if we don't move to single payer health care, we're going to be fucked. There's got to be a... A system that doesn't rely on for profit corporations to determine who lives and who dies. And and I that's what I firmly believe. And if you are on the other end of the spectrum where you think that market forces and and you know, taking regulations off, you know, might be an answer for some of our woes, then you might have a different opinion. So I think that, you know, on that issue he's right. Um, I think his foreign policy, I, I mean at the end of the day, he couldn't be doing worse than Donald fucking Trump. <laughs> um, so, you know, right. Donald Trump, who's ill, at least Bernie Sanders would preserve the relationships that we had already mm-hmm. built um, over the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Um, so, I think that you know, he, he would have been okay there. Although I think he would have been such a pacifist and such a a, a, a dove that he might have pulled us maybe even further out of the world. But I don't think that would have been a terrible thing. Versus, I think Trump is now about to send what four thousand people into Afghanistan. So. You know, I think that I was okay with understanding that Bernie would have pushed us in the right direction, not thinking that some of his very, very liberal proposals were going to be signed into office in even four years, but knowing that if he pushed us, down the road towards single payer health care, if he pushed us down the road towards uh, more equality, if he pushed us down the road towards uh, lowering the cost of higher education, those would all be good
0: things. So, in the era of Trump, we can all agree that Bernie Sanders or pretty much anyone else, I mean, you could get a damn crack addicted monkey who hasn't slept in three weeks, throw him in the White House, and he would do a better job than Donald Trump. But I mean, what's it like living in the era on your end? Yeah, so of
3: course I went off on a Bernie tangent when you asked me about living in the era of Trump. So, um, It's rough. I because I pay attention to all things political, I feel that it's particularly torturous for me because I see everything he's doing. And most of the people that I talk to barely have 25 percent of the story. And that can be a little disconcerting because I'm like, do you not see what he did today? And people I talk to regularly are like, no, what did he do? And I'm like, how could you not know? You know, and you can go down the line on issue by issue by issue. The things that are going on. Um, there's a story that's floating around that's not getting any attention about the kind of the downplaying of civil rights enforcement across federal agencies. I'm sure you've seen this. Yep. Um, this story. I'm like, how is that not getting more play? You see that the these scrubbings of statements of equality about gender and sexual orientation from different agencies' websites and statements and and forms and documents. Um, there's a lot of unsavory things happening. And so because I watch everything, it, it's really disheartening. And to be honest, the the black community while there's a lot of people who are super, super engaged, particularly black women in the Democratic Party, um, have, have been mobilized and have been, you know, worked really hard to defeat Trump, there's a lot of people in our community who are not caught up on the daily political happenings. And I think that if you allow that to continue for too long, you know, in this post-Obama era, we're going to start to see that become really, really problematic for everybody in the Democratic coalition because of the, the disproportionate share of, of votes that black people uh, hold, particularly in the southern states. Um, in the Democratic Party. And, and so it's 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 alarming for me to wake up in this era of Trump, realizing that a lot of people are not paying attention to how um, severe this is. Forget Russia and Mike Flynn and, you know, whether or not Donald Trump and, and Vladimir Putin are pen pals. Just the domestic policy is pretty scary stuff. And a lot of people are not watching.
0: So you mentioned trying to keep up with the daily political news. As part of that, you recently started a podcast. It's called The Rest Pass Report. You've been doing it for almost it was about half a year now give or take.
3: Yeah, since uh, maybe late January, early February, I believe.
0: So what what made you get into podcasting? Because I'll be honest with you, I had never considered starting this podcast until you had started yours, and I had started listening to you, and then I'd also been uh, on with Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox, and that opened up the new world of podcasting to me. I decided to take a dive in it. What prompted you to start the Respass Report?
3: I had fits and starts with blogging for years. You know, I started several websites. You know, the first website I think I ever started was something called teensintopolitics.com. So <laughs> I'd been, I had been, I've had fits and starts with with trying to build online community and conversation around politics for some time, and it just never caught on. I started, you know, discussion forums. They didn't really catch on. I started blogs, and I realized in 2016 that people, especially millennials, are not consuming long form writing via social media, which is the way that you have to distribute it in order to get it out. you know, People aren't signing up for email lists like they used to. So if you don't have people reading your stuff from social media, from Facebook, finding the link on Instagram, or finding it on Twitter, you really don't have anybody looking at your stuff unless you're spending a, a ton on advertising. So I was putting out high-quality, long-form pieces on politics and was finding that people weren't reading them to the bottom. They were just kind of, they if they opened the link at all, they'd read it and or skim it. And then they say, oh, it's great, and, and kind of move on. And so after kind of analyzing that, that you know, that informal data set of, man, like, people are not reading lengthy pieces, you know, especially from people, you know, no-name bloggers on the Internet. I, I was like, how can I comment? How can I offer commentary on politics? How can I reach a broad audience? How can I get my personality across and my style of, of commentary without doing long-form pieces and saying what I really want to say? And I was like, audio. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm subscribed to a number of podcasts. I'm subscribed to the Fiskamall podcast, of course. I'm subscribed to Bill Maher's podcast, The his Show. I listen to several wrestling podcasts, The Stone Cold Steve Austin Show, Talk is Jericho, The Ross Report. Um, I listen to Bill Burr's podcast. I'm a podcast guy, and I'm like, I'm sitting here consuming hours and hours of other people's audio, and this is how they're getting their message across to me why don't i try to get my message across about politics and my views via a podcast and so then i looked into how you could start a podcast and i realized that i really didn't need to spend a ton of money to do it and so i just took the dive earlier this year
0: so if you were to describe the rest pass report you know what's your elevator pitch what's it about
3: that's a very good question it changes from week to week depending on what's going on but i thought it was going to be a a uh, you know sort of a a nice niche progressive outlet that was focused on combating Trump and that was going to be it, but I'm all over the place. So the Respass report covers politics and beyond. So it's basically a uh, progressive commentary bite-sized progressive commentary on issues of the day. It's educational, it's entertaining. And hopefully my listeners learn something if they don't pay attention to politics, I'm particularly focused on millennials, especially millennials of color who may be checking in. Um, a lot of the early feedback that I got was that man, I don't have time to keep up with this, or it doesn't interest me, but you're making it Bite-sized and consumable, so I can understand the gist of what's going on without having to go to traditional news sources. And so that's really the role that I'm that I'm filling: I'm giving bite-sized progressive political commentary to people who are otherwise not as plugged into politics as I am.
0: So, other than searching on iTunes Store, which everyone can do, how can they find your podcast if they're interested in listening?
3: So, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Stitcher, I'm on TuneIn, I'm also on Google Play, and you can just go to uh, Google and search for the Rest Pass Report, and you'll find the online version to listen to as well
0: awesome now you're still active in the democratic party
3: i am uh registered as independent okay i just wanted to check but <laughs> however um i i do support uh democratic causes and, and democratic politicians but my registration officially is independent
0: well you know in the trump era you and i are twins on that because i decided to leave the gop on november 10th because i was tired of trump shit so we'll be uh independents together Harold, thank you for joining us. I'm going to have to uh, cut us off here because we got to go ahead and squeeze in a, a section on Law 140 and standing. But thank you so much for being our first ever guest on Fisca Mall and hope to have you back in a future podcast.
3: Thank you for having me, Greg. I really appreciate it.
0: So that was Harold Respass. His podcast is The Respass Report, Politics and Beyond. You can find it on those uh, sites he listed, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. I try to listen to different perspectives all the time because it helps keep my mind sharp. So listening to liberals, listening to progressives and understanding why I disagree with them makes it easier for me to convey my standpoint as a conservative. So give him a listen when you can. Let's go ahead and transition now into our Law 140 on Standing. Bum bum Now, this week's Law 140 was prompted by that emoluments lawsuit that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And one of the issues is whether or not congressional Democrats are able to actually file suit to enforce this particular clause in the Constitution. It's not something that's been litigated all that much before because we haven't had a guy this fantastically rich as president of the United States. So just like last week, when we went over First Amendment uh, free speech principles, I'm going to link several cases in the show notes, but I'm going to describe it more from the standpoint as a framework, because when you're talking about standing, you're really talking about this broader topic called justiciability, the idea of whether or not the justice system has the ability to address a particular issue. And as we talked before, we have certain rules here at fisk right? So the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're recorded on video. The second rule is that whenever you're looking at something that is a law, you have to start with the source text. So Article 3 of the United States Constitution describes the power of the judiciary, and Section 2 of that article says, quote, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects the key words in there i mean there's a lot of them and those each piece of that clause has been parsed in different supreme court cases but this notion that the federal judicial power is limited to cases or controversies, kind of outlines how that all goes down. So like with state courts, state courts have nearly unlimited jurisdiction because the notion when we formed our country was that the states were independent sovereigns and they gave up just a teeny bit of their sovereignty to form the United States. The federal government, the federal courts, were deliberately limited. So section two of article three intentionally limits how the court can operate, and that's where this notion of standing comes in. So in order to have standing to file suit in federal court, there are things that are required. So we refer to those in law as elements. Anything that is required to trigger something is an element. And then you also have certain limitations that are more uh, prudential, something more to deal with case management and the, the courts not sticking their nose into something when it's not a smart thing to do. They technically could, but they try not to. So from the standpoint of the elements, the requirements to have standing, is first that someone has to actually suffer an injury. It's either already happened or it's going to be imminent. It can't just simply be something that's hypothetical. It has to be concrete, it has to be particularized. Um, So now that injury can be broad. It can be an economic injury, you could lose money. It could be a non-economic injury. It could end up chilling your free speech rights. It could be some combination of the two, but there has to be what is called an injury in fact. Once there's an injury or an imminent injury, there also has to be causation in that the person you're suing is the cause of that injury. So if, for example, I ended up punching a Nazi for some reason, Richard Spencer or whoever else, because it's always fun to punch a Nazi. Spencer then couldn't sue Harold, my guest earlier, because Harold had nothing to do with me punching him. It just happened that I was the one that caused that injury, in fact. So the causation element has to be there. The person that you're filing suit against has to be the cause of that injury. And then the third element is that there has to be what is called redressability. There has to be something where the court can fix it. If it's not something the court can fix, the court can't hear it because why are you involving the judicial branch for something the judicial branch doesn't have the ability to resolve? So going from these three elements, there are a lot of other pieces of the puzzle, of the justiciability puzzle. One of them is this notion that in order for there to be um, an injury, in fact, with causation and everything else, that means the judicial issue to be considered is what's called ripe. There's this doctrine of ripeness. Say, for example, I say I'm going to punch a Nazi at some point in the future. Not a particular Nazi, not a particular time. There's nothing there for the court system to act on. So it's nothing ripe for consideration. Once I've actually punched a Nazi or I've taken concrete steps to do so, then theoretically there might be a crime there. But until then, the issue is unripe. There's also the matter of what's called mootness, when something is moot, M-O-O-T. And that is when the issue that you're complaining about has already been resolved so that there's nothing really for the court to weigh in on. Because, again, going back to this language in Article 3, Section 2 about a case or controversy, if you've already resolved the matter, then there's no longer a controversy. There's no longer an actual dispute between parties. So, for example... One of the things you'll often see is where a, someone has sued to challenge a state law. The state, he's either won or lost at the district court level. The case gets appealed. If the legislature changes the law before the appellate court weighs in, the case has been moot. There's no longer anything to consider. We've seen that several times involving cases um, about handgun usage, for example. Um, one exception to the mootness doctrine is when an injury is... Uh, capable of repetition, yet evading review. That's the magic language the courts use. Capable of repetition, yet evading review. And the classic example of that is the case of Roe v. Wade, which allowed abortions to be legal here in the United States. A woman's pregnant for nine months. There's no way a case is going to get resolved in that time. So theoretically, if she were to sue to have an abortion by the time the courts weighed in, she would have already had to have had the baby. And then at that point, the baby's been born. So the issue normally would be moot. So there's this exception to the mootness doctrine if something is capable of repetition. But general rule is that you have to have an injury, it has to be ripe for judicial consideration, and it has to be not moot. Outside of those standing elements, the justiciability elements, there are also some what we call prudential considerations where a court may not weigh in, even though theoretically they could. So one of those is that the, United states, the federal courts do not issue what are called advisory opinions because Article 3, Section 2 requires a case or controversy. The notion is that if you're just asking the court to interpret something, but there's not actually a dispute between the litigants, that's outside the scope of federal power. This is different from several state courts. There are actually many states where the courts are allowed to provide advisory opinions to the legislature, to the executive branch, where if a law is passed... The executive can say, hey, judge or judges, give us your interpretation of this law so we know how to implement it. States have the power to do that because they were, again, used to be these sovereign entities before we formed the United States. Federal courts do not have that power. In addition, there are things, for example, there's this notion of what is called a political question. So a political question is something where there's multiple pieces that outline what constitutes one. Uh, You might recall from one of our earlier podcasts, I talked about the case of Nixon versus United States. This was not United States v. Nixon. So United States v. Nixon is when they were dealing with the president of the United States. Nixon versus United States is where a judge was impeached and removed. And there was a question about whether or not the trial in the Senate was adequate. Go back to our earlier podcast on that discussion. But a political question is one that involves one or all of a, a wide number of things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you six different snippets from that decision about what a political question is. Instead of me saying it's quote this or quote that, I'm just going to read it all to you. So a political question is something where the matter involved "...has a textually demonstrable constitutional commitment of the issue to a coordinate political department, there's a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving it, there's an impossibility of deciding the matter without an initial policy determination of a kind clearly for non-judicial discretion... There's an impossibility of a court's undertaking independent resolution without expressing lack of the respect due coordinate branches of government. There's an unusual need for unquestioning adherence to a political decision that's already been made, or there's a potentiality of embarrassment from multifarious pronouncements by various departments on one question." So again, this is very judgy, very lawyery. Lots of big words, but the gist of it is: there's only a few things courts are supposed to weigh in on. They don't have broad, unlimited discretion to do so. Um, so one of the things they try to avoid is weighing in on political issues when they're not supposed to. We also have a prohibition on what is called third-party standing. Uh, With very few exceptions, you can't sue to assert someone else's rights. Um, There are a few exceptions to that. So we have a doctrine where if if the person who would be injured is an infant or they're mentally incompetent, um, something like that, you can step in on their behalf. And there are particular third-party standing options uh, that are established by statute Uh, So, for example, you have this notion of what's called key TAM litigation. I may be pronouncing that wrong. But essentially, if there's fraud taking place in the government, you as an independent taxpayer can identify that fraud and sue on the government's behalf to try and ferret that out. Uh, But generally, there is no third party standing. We also have a prohibition on what are called generalized grievances. So there's no taxpayer standing. A random taxpayer can't go sue the government because they don't like a particular thing Congress has done. We have developed over the years a very narrow exception to that, where if Congress has allocated money in a fashion that would violate the Establishment Clause to the First Amendment, so they've allocated money regarding a religious institution of some form, the courts have recognized very limited taxpayer standing to sue to try and prevent that from taking place. But outside of that one tiny piece, uh, there is no taxpayer standing, there is no generalized grievance standing. Um, Congress can establish standing by statute for certain things. As part of that, the Supreme Court has Implemented these tests. So there's what's called the zone of injury test, where if a statute is trying to prevent some particular harm, uh, the injury suffered has got to be one that Congress expected to fall under that statute. And then you also have the zone of interest test, where the party being involved is within the zone of interest protected by the statute of the constitutional provision. Um, So there are other pieces to standing. It's one of those things where it's very particularized based on given issues. Uh, When we study it in law school, they kind of give us this wide list of things that you have to meet. But even then, uh, you can always find usually a case of some form or another where something is slightly out of whack. But the gist of it is you have to have an injury in fact. There has to be causation in the part of the person that you're suing. There has to be the ability of the court to address it. The issue you're suing under has to be ripe for consideration. It cannot be moot, can't be a political question, can't be a generalized grievance, can't be something you're asserting on a third party unless one of those uh, exceptions apply. So from the standpoint of, for example, this emoluments case, the question is whether or not congressional Democrats can sue the president, and the short answer is we don't know. Because is it something where there's an injury in fact, maybe to other people Uh, in the sense of the president's competitors are certainly being injured by the fact that he's running a hotel competing against them. But is there an injury, in fact, suffered by Congress Because the president isn't adhering to the particular clause of the Constitution. You can make an argument that the answer to that is yes, because we have a constitutional framework where all of the branches has to be uh, following their constitutional rules. You can also argue no, because when a president screws up, your option is to impeach and remove him. And if you're not going to do that, is that something the courts can uh, get involved with? Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that there is an injury in fact by virtue of the president not divesting himself from his companies, and that violates the emoluments clause. Congress is injured because of that. Are the congressional Democrats the proper party to sue, or does it have to be congressional leadership, or does Congress have to delegate a committee to sue? That's a separate question of it. Uh, and then there's the matter of redressability. So, what is the Supreme Court or any lower court, what do they do? To resolve the issue. Let's say the court says, yes, you're absolutely right. The president is violating the emoluments clause. What are they going to do? They don't have the power to remove him from office. That is exclusive to the House to impeach and the Senate to try and remove. The courts don't have that power at all is there something where the court can redress this particular concern? I I don't know, and we're going to find out in the months ahead. But that gives you a primer on the doctrine of standing and what is required to actually file suit here in the United States in federal court on any given issue. Folks, I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you for this extra-long Fiscamall podcast. I hope you liked it. Definitely check out Harold, uh, his Respass Report podcast. But in particular, join the conversation online with us. Uh, We are on Twitter at Fisca That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can also go to our website, which is FiscaMall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Leave us a text review so other folks who are listening in uh, know what to expect. Thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of myself, Mike the Sound Guy, Samson, I hope all of you have a blessed week. Take care.